been using as a theme all of this year, feel the passion. Because passion is the key to your breakthrough in anything you want to do from business to a relationship to making money to raising family to health. Passion is the secret to every breakthrough you're ever going to have. And we've been using the Bible, Ecclesiastes 9, verse number 7. This tremendous verse, just the first two words are enough for me to spend the rest of my life mesmerized by this teaching. Look at it. Seize life. This is a course from Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse from the message, the Bible in conversational English. But wow, the Bible is such an incredible resource for living life successfully. And you know what's tragic? Many people don't understand that. One of the greatest con games that's ever been perpetrated upon the human race is to convince people the Bible is boring. It's for people who are getting old or just been diagnosed with a, a terminal illness. That outside of that, there's no relevancy in the Bible. Those first two words right there ought to convince you that that is a lie from hell that the enemy has tried to tell our world. Seize life. You will never find a more profound truism than that or principle for finding success in life than these two words. Life's not going to come ring your doorbell. You've got to seize it. That's what that's saying. And the companion text that we're using is one that also gives us the good news that we have help available to us to, to, as it were, seize life and make the most of it. Thank God for that. Supernatural help. You say, how do you know we have that available? Look at Hebrews 4, verse 14, beginning. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's pretty supernatural right there, you know. Okay. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What these verses literally tell us is that in our endeavor to seize life, we have supernatural help and resources available. These verses remind us that we can draw from God's help to be the maximum and fulfill the utmost of our potential and therefore see our destinies firmly established and fleshed out. You don't want to be just a shell of who you were supposed to be. Not only do these verses tell us that we can enlist God's help, they encourage us to do so. And I believe it's God's wish because we're instructed to follow this instruction. I believe it's God's wish that he wants to be involved in our lives. Boy, enemies told us everything but that, hasn't he? Serve God, you won't have any fun, won't live life successfully, it's going to cramp your style, won't fit in. Uh-uh, that's his lie to mankind. And I don't believe these verses are restricted in their meaning to providing spiritual help only. Today's Father's Day. Any father in this building doesn't just wish for his children help in only one dimension or aspect of their life. He wants them to find success in every single area. Whether it's their health, their marriages when they get married, their families when they have kids, their jobs, their finances, every aspect, their walk with God. Any father worth the title wants his best 
wants the best for his kids in every single area. If that's true about us, how much more does our Heavenly Father want us to succeed in every area of our life? We're God's children. He wants to bless you financially, wants your marriage to be blessed, wants you to be blessed in terms of your business, wants you to be blessed in terms of your health, your walk with God, your ministry. It's a lie from the pit of hell that the only hope that you have from the Bible that is being offered is hope and help that is of a spiritual nature. No. He wants you to be blessed in every single area. So the big question then arises, how do we take advantage of this incredible resource that has been offered to us? And throughout the Bible, we read of people who did exactly that, who had incredible breakthroughs. And these people that I've been telling you about every week, notice their breakthroughs were not just of a spiritual nature. They had breakthroughs in politics. They had breakthroughs in the economy. They had breakthroughs in health. They had breakthroughs in all sorts of things with their families. They sought God and received supernatural assistance and had incredible breakthroughs in every dimension of their life imaginable, not just spiritual breakthroughs. So we've been looking at those and as we search those, my thesis has been this, that when we read of these people, we notice that they all acted with one common thing that made them be, as it were, unified in terms of their pursuit, and that was passion. They had great passion, and their passion touched God. And God was so moved by what they did in their act of passion that he acted extraordinarily and stepped into their circumstance and gave them a breakthrough. So the rest is, as we say, history, which is really a cognate of two words, his story. So breakthroughs are the result of passion that make his story become history in your life. Father, today I pray that you will let heaven come into this place and open our understanding to the profound truths of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody shouted and said amen. Last week, we looked at a lady by the name of Rizpah who moved the king with extraordinary intercession, and he acted extraordinarily to give her a breakthrough. And this, is a, this story is one of the most graphic, horrifying stories in the Bible, while at the same time, one of the most inspiring. It's found in 2 Samuel 21 and 10. At first blush or glance, you might would think on Father's Day, why go to a story about a woman named Rispa? Well, hang on, I'm going to fix all that before we're done. I promise. But this story speaks to men, and I'm going to show you why. Now, Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. This story is about Rispa, one of the wives of Saul, King Saul of Israel, Israel's first king, in fact, after the era of the judges had ended. Now, King Saul was not a good leader. He had great insecurities. His insecurities caused him to crave, as it were, the following of people 
and their regard more than it, he did the regard of God. As a result, he did things to endear himself to people what he thought they wanted that sometimes cost him in his relationship with the Lord. And like any political figure, he mastered the art whenever God's favor began to leave his leadership. He mastered the art of misdirection. Look over here while I do my stuff over here. And so as he turned away from the Lord, the nation of Israel began to get in trouble. Saul began to point to the Gibeonites who were a tribe of idolatrous people that lived in Israel. And I shared the story of how they came to live in Israel last week. Joshua had made a covenant with them in the name of Jehovah God that they would be spared. And Saul began to point to the Gibeonites and say, ha, the reason we're in trouble in Israel is not my poor leadership, it's those pagans over there that are worshiping idols. Let's go wipe them out. And he rallied Israel around him and they went down in an effort to destroy the tribe of Gibeonites forever. Fortunately, they did not succeed. But it broke and annulled the covenant that Joshua had made in the name of Jehovah God with them many, many years before and profaned and brought sacrilege upon the name of Jehovah God. And so Saul goes on to earn his destiny. He is heired. He's feared men more than God. He ends up dying on a battlefield. Some of his sons die there. David becomes king in a drought is smitten the land. David seeks the Lord and asks God why. And God said, because Saul profaned my holy name by bringing sacrilege upon a covenant made in the name of Jehovah God when he tried to wipe out the Gibeonites. Think of it now. And David, here's the key point now, didn't ask God, what do I do to fix it? David said, let me go ask the Gibeonites what to do. Some things you can only fix by talking to God. Amen. You try to fix it with your fellow man as much as you can. But have you ever had a situation you just couldn't fix no matter how hard you try? At least fix it vertically if you can't fix it horizontally. He went and tried to fix it with them. And they said, we want seven sons of Saul to be executed in payment for his crime against us. You turn to men, they'll always demand their pound of flesh. I can promise you. They want to get even. Amen. Doesn't care about justice. We just won't get even. We want vengeance. And so David made the mistake of giving the Gibeonites seven sons of Saul. Two of them were the sons of Rizpah, five by another wife that Saul had. And they were impaled on stakes on the crest of a hill and left to die. A horrific means of execution because you could live for two or three days after being impaled on a stake. And they were literally left to die. When the last one expired, the crowd melted away. All those that had come to see the execution, all of the family, all of the mourners, everybody went home, including the mother of the other five. The bodies were left impaled, but there was one woman who didn't go home, and that was Rizpah, and she laid down on her shawl at the foot of these stakes with her two sons impaled on them and chased away the wild beasts that came to devour their bodies and the birds of the air that came to, as it were, desecrate their flesh, the vultures, the kites, the other carrion birds. Now, here's the benefit. Now, this woman in this story 
is a type of intercession. And what a picture of intercession it means. Because to intercede, as I've pointed out, means to stand between for the purpose of protection, benefit, preservation, or reconciliation. She stands waving her coat, telling the animals, you can't have my boys. Guess who else receives benefit from her protecting her two sons, the other five sons that are not hers? You see, when you do intercession, it not only protects you and your family, it protects your neighborhood. When a church intercedes in a city, it doesn't just affect the families of that church. You see what I'm talking about? It affects the city that it's in. And when a church in the church in a nation made up of many congregations intercedes with God, the whole nation is affected. So she not only was keeping the beast away from her two sons, it was she was keeping them away from the other five as well. And what I need to say today is God knows if there ever was a time we need intercessors, we need them right now. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Now, let's talk to men because, as I said, this may seem like a strange place to preach a Father's Day message. But you see, we men are made in a certain way. And ladies, let me help you out if you don't understand us. We men don't want anybody messing with our stuff. Come on, ladies. You know what? Those of you that have been married a while, those were the ones that laughed just then. Because you know, uh uh-huh. We got a certain place for everything. Doesn't matter how chaotic the bedroom may be, how much junk is piled on the dresser. We know where every little dime, every little piece of paper, every receipt is. Don't you mess it. Don't you touch with it. Amen. We see order in the middle of the chaos. You can't, but we do. You want to come in and tidy it all up, and all you're doing is creating another work for more work for us. We got to go figure it all out again. We get it situated in our little piles, and you know, don't mess with our stuff. Don't mess with our wives. Don't mess with our kids. Don't mess with our money. Don't borrow our tools unless you ask. Don't take our lawnmower. Am I preaching now, men? Don't you take our car unless you get permission. Now, we'll give just about anything away within reason. Just don't take it unless you ask. You see, we feel an incumbent responsibility to watch over and protect what God has put in our hands. We're all that way, and that's the way God made us. Got another Boudreaux joke for (laughs) y'all. I ran across some great ones recently. I hope I'm not boring y'all, but this is my culture, Man from Louisiana, and Boudreaux and Thibodeau set out on a trip from Gaydon to New Orleans, and they decided to stop and take a restroom break, one of the rest stops on I-10. Now, Thibodeau was known as a real tightwad. It was winter, and old Thibodeau was walking toward the rest stop area with his hands in his pockets, and when he got inside, he pulled his hands out of his pocket, and a quarter flipped out and flipped into the water. Mm. And that was a problem. Because Boudreaux knew what a tightwad Thibodeau was. So Thibodeau looks at that quarter. Boudreaux looks at the quarter, looks up at Thibodeau, waiting to see what Thibodeau's going to do. Thibodeau reaches into his pocket, pocket, pulls out a $10 bill, and throws it in there with that quarter. And Boudreaux said, Thibodeau, what on earth, man, you done gone and done? You done throw that $10 bill in there with that quarter. And Boudreaux looked at him and said, or rather, Thibodeau looked at him and said, Boudreaux, you don't think I'm going to put my hand in there for just a quarter, do you? 
Now we're going to get what belongs to us. We're going to get it back. You see what I'm saying? We're not letting it go easy. You say, well, how does this story with Rispa relate to all of that? It relates to it in this sense. The truth is that the role of protecting her family and being an intercessor fell upon Rispa's shoulders because the man who should have been there was absent. That was her husband, Saul. He had got himself into trouble, and as a result, by default, she was now having to do what the man should have been done, doing all along. Oh, I'm preaching to you right now. Secondly, it was Saul's poor choices that brought death upon his sons. Because of his insecurities, he had tragically chosen a path that ended up leading him to his death on a battlefield. And so it was because of her, his poor choices that she is now thrust into the position of being an intercessor. First, he made the wrong choices. And secondly, being absent, she has to now stand in the place of being an intercessor. One of the great tragedies of the church in modern times is that we view intercession to be the work of the ladies. I'm preaching better than you're responding. The fact is, if there's anybody in this world that was made psychologically, emotionally, and every other way to defend what belongs to him, it was the man God put in that home. Thank God for our men that are intercessors. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah. We have a God-given assignment to stand between the enemy and our families and make sure no harm befalls them. The absence of fathers in the home has had an absolutely devastating effect on children and families in the United States of America. Just this week, Rhonda Geddes sent me an email just pointing out if I realized that since Sandy Hook school shooting, that was the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, December 14, 2012, there have been 74 school shootings in the United States of America. 74 in the last 18 months. Intercessors, where are you at? The absence of fathers has brought destruction to our families and to our homes. Hello, I'm preaching right now. I realize I'm preaching to the choir because our men are here. But I want to show you why your role matters in today's world. Where you can walk out the door and enlist the help of others who are not taking on their responsibility and help them to do what they're supposed to do. Intercessory prayer is when in prayer we stand between the enemy and what is dear to us and we go to God on their behalf. Or sometimes even between God and our loved ones or circumstances when because of poor choices, God in his reticence but holiness who is reluctant to ever visit judgment, it's always a last resort, comes to us and says, I have no choice but to deal with it. Do you want to stand between me and them so that I can give them another opportunity? Amen. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah. Men are the first ones that are supposed to stand in the gap. Sometimes we men are a little reluctant to do that. 
I was thinking just this week, I have a pastor friend in the state of Illinois that I've spoken often for through the years. And one night I was preaching for him, and he and his wife the next day laughed, and they were telling me a story. They were awakened upstairs by a noise downstairs in their home about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And they both jumped up together and started to head down the stairs. And the wife got to the stairs first, and she's on her way down, and the husband is behind her pushing her just like that. She laughed and she said, I realized when I took a couple of steps what was happening, there's something wrong with this picture. And she said, I stopped and I said, wait a minute. You're supposed to be up here and I'm the one supposed to be behind you doing the pushing. Now, they got that straight. And fortunately, it was their little house dog that had knocked something over in the middle of the night. I shudder to think what would have happened to their marriage if they had found somebody broken into their home and they had gotten down there and that husband had been the guy bringing up the rear. I'm not sure his marriage would have done real well after that because men don't do good leading from behind, amen. Men do better when we're out front. It's our God-assigned responsibility to protect what is behind us. Can somebody in the building say that's right? Last week I talked to you about Abraham also who prayed one of the earliest intercessory prayers found in the Bible. The Lord went down in Genesis 18 to see, the scripture says, if the evils of Sodom and Gomorrah were as bad as he had heard they were. That's what he told Abraham. Now, if it was, he said he was going to bring judgment upon the city, and he brought with him two angels of judgment. He stopped first. This is very significant at the house of Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I'm going down to see if it's as bad as I hear it is. Now, now I need you to understand this, and it's going to matter in just a few minutes. You hear me keep using from time to time this word anthropomorphism. This is an anthropomorphism. What is an anthropomorphism? It's when God ascribes to himself human characteristics to make himself relatable to us, where we can understand him. Kind of hard to relate to a God who's so big the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. So God breaks himself down, as it were, to us and helps us in our understanding of him by using terms that don't really fit when it comes to God because he's omniscient and I'm not present and I'm omnipotent and all of that, but God breaks himself down so we, oh yeah, yeah, I understand what he's talking about. And for, so this term, I'm going to go down and see if it's as bad as I heard it was. <laughs> I just read that and I chuckle because God knew before there ever was on earth how bad Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be. He didn't need to go check anything out. Reason he went down is he wanted to stop at Abraham's house first and say, do you want to intercede for them? And so I look at this. There are some other anthropomorphisms in the Bible you read about. It's like those places where it said the Lord remembered Noah. You remember when the world was about to be wiped out by a flood, but he remembered Noah and gave him instructions for the ark. It's like if you take that literally, what you think that means is God's getting ready to wipe out the world. And just when he's about to throw the first lightning bolt, he said, oh, wait a minute. There's Noah over there. Forgot all about him. Noah, let me go help you out and spare him. 
No, God didn't remember Noah. Noah was always in God's mind. But it helps us understand that when judgment comes, God always makes a way for those who are devoted to him. Amen. And it's just like those other places where it said the Lord was sorry that he made man or the Lord stretched out his hand. God doesn't have a hand to stretch out. Or I, the arm of the Lord is not short that it cannot save. All of these are anthropomorphisms. And what you need to understand is to be an effective intercessor, you've got to realize this about God. I'll explain why in just a moment. Notice that just as in the story with Rizpah, Abraham's intercession did not just affect his family. He had a nephew that he had raised that was now married and had kids that were grown and married and grandkids, no doubt, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham began to intercede. And not once did God ever seem peeved or upset or angry that Abraham was saying anything about, God, will you spare the city if there's 50? Or if there's only 45, will you spare it? Well, how about 40 then? Well, maybe 30? He just, God never one time hinted that he was upset. But Abraham stopped at 10, and as I've told you, in my opinion, it's because he had at least that many family members in Sodom that he thought Lot would have done his job as priest to his family to ensure they were saved. But Lot had not done his job. As Saul was absent in the story of Rizpah, Lot was the father who wasn't filling his place as a spiritual intercessor to his family either. Oh, Lord. Now, here's what would have happened had Lot done his part. Abraham's intercession wouldn't have just spared Lot and his family. It would have caused the city to be spared. What you need to know is when intercession doesn't take place, that it affects a lot of people and not just one or two. But on the other hand, when you intercede, as with Rispa, as with Abraham, you don't know how far-reaching your prayers are. Oh, I'm preaching to you, Daddy. Hear me. Men in this church, you don't know the impact you have on this city. You don't know the impact you have for God. And that's why it's important that we intercede. Next thing I want to show you is that Abraham was known in Scripture as a friend of God. And a friend implies relationship or closeness. Let me just point something out. If you're going to be successful as an intercessor, you need to have some relationship with God because it's a whole lot easier to intercede with somebody you know than it is Mr. Uncle Stranger God, you know, benevolent grandfather with a long beard in heaven kind of, I never met you, but I'm in trouble and I need you now or my son needs you. Let me tell every dad something in this room. We live in a fallen world. And you may not need God right now with your family. Your kids may make straight A's. They may be the most beautiful, handsome kids in school. But trust me, in this world, you're going to need divine intervention for your family someday. If not when they're growing up, you're going to need it somewhere, somehow. I don't even know how old Lot was when Abraham prayed. But he was old enough to have grown kids that were married old enough to have teenage daughters at home, old enough to probably have grandkids. What am I trying to tell you? Your kids never get so old they outlive your need of interceding on their behalf. Amen. You may not need to touch God for them when they're teenagers, though you might. 
Oh, yeah. And maybe even when they're younger, this is a bad world we live in. And the enemy has assigned his forces to try to destroy this generation of young people that's coming up. Why do you think they're going into school 74 in the last 18 months to shoot and blow kids away? This is a generation the enemy is terrified of. If they get turned on to God, he knows his, forgive me, his proverbial goose is cooked. It's all over but the shouting. Amen. You're going to need to touch God for your daughter someday. You're going to need to touch God. It may not be until your son gets grown, but you may need to touch God for your son, his job, his marriage. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Your grandkids, you're going to need to move God someday. And you don't wait until you, you do need him until you decide, uh, uh, what's his number again? What's that phone number to heaven? What, where's that hotline at? Uh-uh, it's Abraham approached God as his friend. Build your relationship now because you're going to need it later on. Don't wait till you need it. Come on, Daddy. Hear what I'm telling you? Your kids are going to need a man of God in the house. They need a priest in the home. Amen. There's just too much that can go wrong and will go wrong in living life in this world we live in for you to wait. Too much trouble can happen. Too much hell can be raised. Too many bad things can come down the road and you need to stand as an intercessor and say, wait a minute, you're not touching my family. Uh-uh. Next thing you need to know is that you need to understand how anthropomorphisms relate as they are regarding or as they are understood in terms of our prayer lives. The problem is the enemy has convinced too many people that we have to intercede between God and man. God's a problem. I want you to know that true understanding of who God, God is will lead you to conclude that the heart of God is good. Amen. If there's anybody that wants to bless you, it's God. So understand up front, intercession is not trying to talk God into doing anything for you. Too many people think that intercession is twisting God's arm. I'm going to fast and pray till God breaks through. Well, you, that's what you should do is fast and pray till God breaks through. But we understand it to mean this. I'm going to fast and pray until God decides to act. And you know, and God does come and act. That's what we think is the breakthrough. It's not God we're having to, to persuade. You need to realize right now, you will never be able to change God's mind about anything he ever has set himself to do or ever has determined he will not do. First of all, he doesn't even live in time. He lives in eternity. Everything he has ever done, he's already finished doing. This little trial you're going through right now, God's already on the other side of it. He lives beyond all of that. You need to know that everything you ever need was created whenever he created and spoke the world into existence. He didn't just decide to make you and didn't just learn that you had a problem yesterday. God saw you before you were ever born. God knew what you would walk through because he lives in eternity. He watched it unfold. He saw you come in and birth and exit in death. He's already been to both your birth and your funeral, amen. That's what being eternal means. Time is a little insertion into eternity. 
So what then is intercession? Intercession is not persuading God. You need to know that before you were formed in your mother's belly, God knew you and ordained you to the destiny that he created you to come into this world to feel. Not only did he know your destiny, he knew everything the enemy would throw against you to try to keep your destiny from happening. And when he created you, he released everything you needed to be able to overcome the enemy when he did show up. Intercession is not twisting God's arm. What intercession is, is agreeing with God and saying, God, today I stand with you. The enemy cannot lay a glove on my family. Oh, somebody in the building. that's been there can testify to this. Oh, hallelujah. I salute those fathers in this room who have made an unshakable commitment to not neglect the spiritual needs of their families. Abraham knew his number one responsibility was to his family. He thought that Lot would understand that. He thought he had helped him to know this, but Lot was absent, as was Saul. Amen. We've left the job up to our ladies. If they've done as good a job as they have done, and they've done a marvelous job, how much more effective could we be if we men take our rightfully assigned role? Hallelujah to the Lamb. Isn't it strange that the dads of today will make sure their kids have the latest Air Jordans, go to school, play the right sports, and get to go to a Texans game every now and then? but don't bring them to church on Sunday morning. I'm telling you, there's something wrong with that picture. There's something wrong with that picture. What you've got is mama going down the steps of the house because there's a noise in the basement. Come on, daddy. I'm calling you out to take your rightful place. God has anointed you. You are mighty. You are strong. You are valiant. You are brave. You have come to the kingdom for this time. Hallelujah. I'm sorry I'm getting worked up about this. I just feel my anointing kicking into overdrive right now. Hallelujah. You're not persuading God. Listen to this, Matthew 7, 11. Jesus addresses this idea that we've got to persuade God to do something when he said, if you then being evil, speaking to human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? As I've said, they've already been released in the heavens. The opposition you're facing is the enemy. Jesus went on further to say, don't think you're persuading God when in Matthew 6, 7 through 8, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Why? Underline this verse right here, dads. Highlight it in your Bible. Memorize it. Put it on your mirror. Read it when you shave. Look at it. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. You're not changing his mind. You're agreeing with him against the force that's trying to keep you from walking in the full manifestation of everything that God has for you. Hallelujah. Amen.
Don't let your theology be messed up. It's the enemy that's like the wild beast and the wheeling, circling kites and vultures overhead. They're the ones that's trying to destroy your job, your economy, your finances, your wife, your marriage, your children, your grandchildren. They're the ones that are hurting you. Not God. I shall never forget. I think it was my very first trip to India, or at least one of the first. We had gone to Calcutta. Mike Massengill, my buddy who's going to be with the Lord, was there with me and some others. And um, uh, as we went, that was the same trip to Calcutta that if you've ever seen the picture of me and Mother Teresa, Mike was the one taking that picture. He always complained afterward. He said, where was I? I was the guy holding the camera. Nobody believes I was there. It's you and Mother Teresa. Amen. But after, on the way to see her, we went to a, by a Hindu temple and we stopped because they were cremating bodies, which is a part of their religion. And the poor people, it's not done in, with any, I'm talking about with any special regard to your sensibilities. It's right out in the open. They take stacks of wood. They pile the bot, put the body on it, put stacks of wood on top of it, and they set the, the pieces of wood across one another so that the, the ventilation can get through it, and it is something to see. There were stacks of bodies, funeral piers, all over that Hindu temple courtyard, and there were priests that were tending them, and they were burning these bodies, and it was like something out of Dante's Inferno. I'm telling you, smoke billowing upward, the smell of burning flesh, and ashes were falling down, just like that scene in Schindler's List, whenever they were you know, burning, incinerating Jewish people in the ovens there in, the, in the, the, uh, the camps there in Germany, those concentration camps, and ash was falling everywhere. We were standing there. It was like, I mean, it was, I felt the hair stand up on the nap of my neck. And we're watching these vultures and these kites wheel in and out of the smoke. And they're diving down. And, and, and this, all of this is billowing up. And the ash is raining down. I'm talking about you. You want, you want culture shock, baby? That was culture shock for me. Where we have our nice dignified funerals. And we talk about the real person is not here. He's going home. This is just the tent that he was. Oh, yeah. It was a different story there. I'm telling you. And I thought of this scene from Rispa because Rispa is fighting the vultures away and the beasts away that are coming to devour her sons. You're not fighting God. It's the enemy you fight in intercession. You need to know that. Oh, somebody help me out here. Amen. Other examples of intercession in the Bible. At least four times God made up his mind that because of Israel's sin, they had been led into rebellion by the enemy that his righteous nature required judgment. So before judging Israel, you know what God did? God's a softy. Watch this. He first goes to Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and start out of you a new nation. Amen. Why didn't he just wipe them out? It's never God's intention to really carry through. Only time he carries through is whenever he doesn't have an intercessor. Exodus 32, 32, yet now if you will forgive their sin, Moses said, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Do you know what happened? Moses talked God out of destroying Israel four different times. There were other times he said, God, would you please come kill these crazy rebellious people? If God and Moses ever had a bad day on the same day, Israel would not be in existence right now. Amen. 
But hear what I'm talking about. Moses literally stood between Israel and the judgment that was coming to tell the enemy, you have deceived them, but you're not going to cause them to go to judgment. I'm interceding with God's mercy and on their behalf. I think of Esther who interceded for her people and many others. I have stories to tell. Those of you that know me know that I came from a rough background when I was a kid. My mother put me out at the age of four. My grandmother took me in, raised me. Thank God for that. I wouldn't be a Christian probably if it hadn't been for her. But, I mean, she was an intercessor. And she prayed. But I got, I mean, it messed up my mind, all the emotional stuff I went through as a kid. It was unbelievable. And you wouldn't have liked me then. I was, I was in trouble. I mean, drugs and alcohol and all this craziness and making my living and nightclubs as a musician and just crazy stuff. And one day I got in a, in a fight with a drug pusher in his own home, a man that they later locked up for 27 years, I think it was, in Angola State Penitentiary, took a razor and sliced some people to pieces. And his name was John. Don't ask me his last name. I'm not going to tell you. Because, I mean, it, 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 this, that guy, he was trouble. We stood there. He shoved a gun in my face, a pistol in my face, and started to squeeze the trigger. And I stood there knowing I was going to go to hell. Even though I was stoned out of my mind, I thought, next stop, next destination, eternity without God. I stood there thinking that. And all of a sudden, a strange look came over his eye. He uncocked the hammer of that gun, put it down, and said, you get out of here. Don't you ever come back. If I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. I walked out of there. Two days later, I called my grandmother. And when I called her, first thing she said was, Richard, where were you two days ago at 7 o'clock? The hair on the nap of my neck stood up again. I mean, I didn't even know how to answer her. I couldn't answer her. I just, uh, uh, uh. And she said, I prayed the death angel away from you for two hours. And the reason, the reason that it chilled me was because that was the exact time I was standing in that man's home with a gun shoved in my face. You don't know the difference that intercession can make. You can change the outcome when you pray. Amen. Hallelujah. One of my personal intercessors in this church was a man by the name of Roger Mora. I don't even know where Roger is today. I've lost touch with him. Roger Moore used to be a pastor in the state of Pennsylvania, moved to Houston, Texas. If you remember Mark Tennant, he was a friend of Mark Tennant's and actually worked with Mark. And they, they worked for the same company, a company helping place foster children in Christian homes for, for care. And Roger was a great guy. And uh, Roger had open heart surgery. And he loved to pray. I mean, he was a prayer warrior. He was having open heart surgery. And while he was having open heart surgery, he had an aortic aneurysm that burst. They didn't even know he had. Roger came out of that paralyzed from his shoulders down. How's that to wake up to? And it looked to him like his life was about over. He wasn't able to work, do anything anymore. He and his wife, Christine, great people. And Roger became my intercessor. Now, they moved to somewhere quite far from here, and I've lost track with them. But when they were still living in the Houston area that I knew anything about, I flew into Amsterdam, flew out of here on a Sunday afternoon, landed in Amsterdam, and about 10 o'clock on Monday morning, we took off from Amsterdam, headed to Nairobi, Kenya. And I was on my way to do some missionary work among leaders. 
as the plane took off, and it was storming in Amsterdam, lightning, flashing, thunder, but somehow or another they gave the go-ahead, and that pilot took off, and we left. And I said in the first service, I think it was a 747. I think that's wrong. It was actually, I think, a 777 they were using in those days. As we were ascending, coming up through the clouds, all of a sudden, something loud like an explosion occurred. Light and fire flashed through that entire airplane. I mean, people screamed. The motors stuttered on that airplane, and we started dropping, and, and we, that, that thing was shaking. And I mean, then suddenly the motors re-engaged and we kept going and the pilot came on. This is when I know it's getting scary. When the pilot tells you what's just happened, that's when you know you're in trouble. You know, they tell, oh, that was just an air pocket. <laughs> and that's one thing. The pilot came on and he, you could hear the fear in his own voice. He said, we, we were just struck by lightning. He said, I don't know what happened, but he said, for a moment, our systems were affected, but he said, we're doing fine. Everything looks good now. He said, I'm going to fly for a little bit and see what happens. And, and he said, it's, it, it, we have to fly back to the airport anyway. So you know what? We flew and landed in Nairobi, and I checked my voicemail, and as God is my witness, when I got to Nairobi and checked my voicemail, there was a message from Roger Mora, and he said, and remember, Amsterdam is seven hours earlier than Houston, Texas, so that would have, 10 o'clock his time would have been 3 o'clock here in Houston. Roger Moore was all excited. He said, Pastor, what happened to you about 3 o'clock this morning? He said, I was awakened out of a dead sleep. And he said, I prayed for you. I think he said an hour and a half or three hours, some, something like that. He said, I was praying the death angel away. Now, now, you can just say that was coincidence if you want to. But if you ever get on an airplane that gets hit by lightning, you're going to be real glad if there's a Roger Moore gets woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning to pray for you. Amen. If You know, it's a, like the difference between major surgery and minor surgery. Major surgery if it happens to me. Minor is if it's happening to you. Amen. Now look, when it happens to you and the shoe's on the other foot, you're going to realize intercession can move God. Somebody in the building say amen today. Look, God doesn't want bad things to happen. Ezekiel 22, verse 30, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. What is God saying? In the story of Abraham, the reason he stopped was so that Abraham would pray. God didn't want to go to Sodom and destroy it. And the reason God let you, if you ever had this feeling, you're praying, you just feel something, and you feel like, oh, man, I need to pray. I got something going. You better listen to that voice because you're changing things and don't even realize you are. Daddy, you make a difference in people's lives. Yes, you do. I close today with these final remarks. Intercession is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 and 26, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself 
makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You ever pray and you feel that little something going on? Don't you get up and leave that altar. Uh-uh, you feel that tug and all day you keep feeling drawn to pray. You need to listen to that voice. Soon as you can, you start. You, you get alone with God because the Spirit is enabling intercession. Amen. Secondly, intercession is necessary not because it's God that opposes you, but the enemy opposes the good things that God has purposed for our lives. Number three, effective intercession clearly sees and understands that God's heart is good and he is for us. It is the enemy who's seeking to bring harm into our lives. You can't blame God when things are going wrong. Don't think that he's your problem. He's the solution to your problem. Amen. Number four, intercession can and will change the outcome if intercession is practiced. God told Ezekiel, the only reason I destroyed Israel when Jeremiah was the prophet was I showed him what was going to happen and I waited for intercessors to pray, but nobody prayed. Therefore, I had no choice. God help us. Let's let it not be said that CT did not pray for Houston. Let's let it not be said that our daddies didn't pray for their kids. Amen, for their families, for their, hello, I'm preaching right now and I feel like something is shifting in the atmosphere even while I'm preaching. Amen. Number five, intercession works best when it's based on relationship with God. Don't wait until you need him to suddenly decide you'd like to know who he is. What was in his name, name again? Jesus, Jesus, yeah. Ah, you better know him before then because effective intercession is based on relationship. Number six, anybody can be an intercessor. And that's where I'm closing with that and one other point. Rispa stood in the gap because Saul wasn't around to do so. Anybody can be an intercessor. Now, I know all of the modern theology. Intercession is your ministry, but it's not mine. And you know, that really is true. But while your major ministry might be intercession and mine might be something else, every child of God is an intercessor, every single one. Even a ch small child can be an intercessor. And the final point is, this, God's will, not our preferences, should inform our intercession. What do I mean by that? You can trust the heart of God. He wants for you what's best for you. And so don't go to praying, you know, your will and your preferences. You can trust him enough to just let go and say, thy will be done.